Well, my friends, one night uh, before bed, I went downstairs into our kitchen to get an orange. And as I was going into the kitchen, uh, I moved my hand and my arm over to the left to turn on the lights. But the light switch was gone. It was gone. Instead of the light switch, there was a smooth wooden wall, and I just stopped, just confused. What is going on? And then then reality hit. It's like, we just did a kitchen remodel. We moved the light switch from the left side to the right side. But that light switch that I had used every day for three years, it was not where my muscle memory expected it to be. For three years, I had carved a deep neural pathway that had become an automatic response. Flip the switch here when you enter this room. (laughs) But now, the automatic action of mind and muscle quite literally left me in the dark. So I laughed at myself, told myself, here's the light switch, went in, found the orange, peeled the orange, ate the orange, and was off to bed, headed out of the kitchen, flicked the light off, or rather, hit a blank wall. Because again, I had forgotten where the light switch was. Sheer moments, right? Sheer moments after muscle memory had misguided me, I went on autopilot and I did the same old thing, followed the old mental map that was in my nerves. My body led me towards unreality. My body led me towards unreality. There was no switch there, but I went for one anyway. It had me flicking a switch that didn't exist. And I'm not going to tell you how many times I've done that since over the last couple of years because you're going to think I'm really slow on the uptake and you might not listen to anything else I have to say. But what's the point? What's the point of this? Well, the lesson that I would like to draw out is simply this. We are formed, we are shaped, we are trained in certain ways to perform certain actions in this world based upon how we believe the world to be. And our bodies contain within them a type of knowledge, a way of being in this world. See, we are always being formed. We are always being formed. Everyone is in a process of spiritual formation. It doesn't matter if you're atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Baptist, whatever. Everyone is being formed. And it takes counter formation. It takes time and, and reshaping and intentional reworking and retraining through God's grace to form us in new ways of inhabiting this world. And this is not just the case with light switches, but with the deep things of the soul, with our engagement with God, with our engagement with other people. And the scriptures teach us that we are born again by grace because of the work that Jesus has done, and because of his spirit now living within us, we are empowered to live a different kind of life, a life that is being sanctified, a life that has us becoming more and more like Jesus, training to become like him, training to become truly human. The Apostle Paul, in the letter of 1 Timothy, he tells his protege, Timothy, that he is to train for godliness, to train for godliness. But what does that mean? What does that look like to train for godliness? If we say we're going to train for a marathon, we we understand that. But what does training for godliness actually look like? 
Well, last week we started this new series called Becoming Truly Human, how apprenticeship to Jesus is the way of human flourishing. And we talked about two big ideas. I want to recap those really briefly here. The first one is this. It's how we imagine the world is how we inhabit the world. How we imagine the world is how we inhabit the world. How we perceive or apprehend the world and and all its bits and pieces that come towards us. How we imagine those integrate to create this world that we're in affect, change, are consequential in how we act or behave in the world. The second thing that we looked at was the apprenticeship paradigm. The apprenticeship paradigm. It doesn't matter where you go in this world. Massive city or small village or, or a home where, where the parents are teaching the children their way of life, there is a pattern, a paradigm for what apprenticeship looks like and how it works. And it's simply this. It's union, abiding, obeying, and imaging. Union. It begins with relationship. Every apprenticeship begins with relationship. There's no such thing as a relationless apprenticeship. So there is a new relationship that is established between an apprentice and a master. That relationship means the apprentice dwells now, is spending time with the master. That apprentice will then obey the master, what the master says. They will practice their ways. And then ultimately this leads to imaging the master, becoming like the master. And so we are united to Jesus because of his work, the good news of what he's done, and his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He sends his spirit to unite us to himself. We become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says. We are drawn into the triune life of God. The great mystery and wonder at the heart of the Christian faith is that we are drawn into this relationship of mutual love and delight that ever was the Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father and the Spirit, the love of this triune God. We're drawn into this and we get to live life with him. And we get to listen to what he says to live well, to live wisely in his world. And then slowly, degree by degree, we're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, as Paul says, conformed into his image. So that's the paradigm. It's the origin, the essence, and the aim of apprenticeship. The origin is that relationship, the the union. The essence of this life is abiding with him and obeying what he says. And the aim of it is to become like him. But then there's this question, the how, what is the how of abiding and obeying? What does that look like? Well, that's where we come to the practices. We have the paradigm and we have the practices. Now, before I dig into this, it's important to say that essential to understanding apprenticeship is the idea of, of embodiment. We're holistic beings, and the entirety of our being is to live with the grain of the universe, to live in accordance with reality. It is to act in trusting response to God. According to the book of James, the Christian is one who lives in accordance with reality. They, they hear and they do the word of God. It is a life of hearing and doing the word of God. Now Jesus, when he was with his apprentices walking around Galilee, he, he told and he showed them how to truly live. And the life of Jesus is marked by all these beautiful practices of grace that are meant to help us as his apprentices train in godliness to become like him, to help us flip those light switches on 
in reality, so to speak, and not go about in the dark running into the walls and the sharp corners of things. And if one soaks in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you soak in those four Gospels, you will see that Jesus' life was marked by many beautiful things. And we see Jesus practice a number of things that he desires and teaches his apprentices to follow. And so these aren't spelled out this way explicitly. It doesn't say, do these seven things, practice these. Uh, but they are there, and they, these are our articulation of these key practices. There's seven of them. Scripture meditation, which we will spend most of our time talking about today. Unceasing prayer. Life together. Unhurried presence. Joyful generosity. Compassionate gentleness. And faithful witness. So as apprentices of Jesus, we are those who are empowered by his grace to follow after him. And these practices should mark a follower of Jesus. And the biblically shaped imagination leads us to inhabit the world, to live in, the, in these different ways. Now, um, these practices, you could say, are habits of practiced wisdom that God uses to train us for godliness, rewriting our old twisted neural pathways that are bent towards sin and self-destruction, reworking our old muscle memories into new loving ones that we might become more and more people of love and people of joy, new creations. It's like, it's like a newborn, right? When a baby is born, they are now <laughs> going to have to figure out how to navigate this world and their body and its movements are in a way new, so to speak. Have you ever seen a newborn? I'm sure, Michael, you guys are witnessing this right now with, with Eden. Like, there's a hand in that baby's face, and the baby's like, what is this? Not realizing it's connected, not realizing the hand, the elbow, the arm is its own. That child is going to go through a process after that birth of getting acquainted of how to live in this world through the body that God has given that child. It's very similar when we become new creations. We are now followers of Jesus given a new nature. What does it look like to live in this world as a renewed, as a restored image bearer who is growing in likeness to this God? So that is what this training is about. Now, before we go on to look at this first foundational practice, uh, let me say this. I want to I bend over backwards to say this so we don't get any of the truth bent sideways. Uh, these practices of grace are not about earning some kind of salvation. Okay? They are not earning salvation. They are working from salvation, working out our salvation in fear and trembling because we've been saved by grace through faith, his spirit lives within us. Now he's empowering us to live a different way. We are not earning his love or acceptance. We have been lavished in his love and acceptance. And now we are training in godliness to follow him. Does that make sense? So they are training, not simply trying. And I want to delineate the difference between training and trying here for a few moments. So I love stringed instruments. I love cello and viola, violin. I love them all. And so... Um, I really want to learn how to play cello. So if I go to my friend's house and I have this desire to play cello and there's a cello in the corner, like I could go and pick up that cello and with every ounce of my being, I could try to play that thing. 
right? With every desire that is within me. I could throw all my passion into playing this thing. But what is going to come out when I try to play that cello? Yeah, right? The, the squeaks, the squawks, the screeching of strings, it's going to be terrible. So it doesn't matter how much passion I have, how much desire, or how much trying I put into that moment. What I need is to be trained how to play that instrument. I need to be trained. I need to pick it up. I, and the desires that are there need to translate into some discipline and some practices in order for that instrument to create harmony, to put forward beautiful music into this world and have it not just be screeching. So in other words, training allows us to do things that we cannot directly do even though we desire to do them in the moment. And and I imagine there's a great number of you who have had your life radically altered by Jesus. You, you were in the darkness, and now you're in the light. He's put this deep joy inside you, and you desire to follow him. You love him. And yet you find yourself doing all these old muscle memory things. Like, why, why am I doing these things? It's because there's this now full-on, lifelong process of training called apprenticeship that is conforming us into his image, where we are rewriting what does it mean to be in the world. It is a process of training that is empowered and carried forward by his grace with our partnership with him. So the Christian life is a life born of grace that changes our future and has us in a long, joyful, painful, let's be honest, it is a painful process called apprenticeship, but it is, it is so good. It is good. Now, with that said, we're going to nestle into our first practice, which is the practice of Scripture meditation. And the way we're qualifying it or describing what Scripture meditation is, is this. Listening to God's Word above all other voices. It's easy to remember. Listening to God's Word above all other voices. See, God is primary. God has spoken. God is primary. We are secondary as his creatures, as his image bearers. What we do is re we respond to the word that has first come to us. Any of our responses or call outs to him it is a second word that comes in response to his first word. He created us. He's graced us. He's poured out his love on us. And we are to then respond to who he is, to trust his word, to be grateful and thankful. And this is why faith or trust is no small thing. It's why it's a matter of life and death. To trust God is to go the way of flourishing. To not trust him. To listen to some counter-narrative, some other voice about how the world is, is to go the way of perishing. And this is what Psalm 1 is talking about. The wise person doesn't listen to the words, the counsel, the way, uh, the, way of the wicked, or the sinner, or, or the rebel. They listen to the narrative of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is this one. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he, he delights day and night. That word delights in Hebrew is a word that means to bend towards something, to want to be close to it because of love and joy and affection. You just got to be close to it so you bend your being to it. So blessed is this one who delights in what God says, who listens to, 
to his story of, of how the world truly is. And then Psalm 1 here tells us that the one who meditates on God's word is blessed, or you could translate that as happy. Happy is the one who listens to what God says about reality. Happy. Because they will be like a, a tree planted by a stream of water, drinking in fresh life, growing and, and producing fruits in appropriate season. They are rooted, they are anchored, they are generative, they're coursing with life as they are meant to. But what we should be taking away from Psalm 1 is not simply that we are to read God's word, but how. How we are to read God's word. And so how do we do it? Well, our author tells us here. We are to meditate on it. To meditate. See, the Bible's meditation literature, it is not microwave literature. The two are very, very different. The Bible's concerned about formation, not merely information transmission. Of course information is transmitted. Of course we learn about things. But it's for whole life transformation and formation. And so the psalmist says that we are to Hagah, God's word. The word that we have is meditate in English, but the Hebrew word is Hagah, Hagah. It's a fun word, you know you want to say it. Come on. Hagah, right? Hagah. To Hagah, God's word. It's a rich and it's a savory word. It's a word with, with great taste to it. Because Hagah means to, to mutter, to speak, or to growl. It's an onomatopoeia. In other words, it sounds like what it is. And so one of the images here is the image of a lion gnawing on its prey, jawing on its lunch. It's the sound of feasting and satisfaction. It's unhurried. It's savored. Now, I didn't grow up with lions. I'm from Colorado. Um, the next town over was Lions, Colorado. But I grew up with golden retrievers instead of lions. Very different animals. And uh, every time I got a new dog, a golden retriever. Like, no surprise, in the Hardesty household, it would be a golden retriever. And the golden retrievers loved these things that were called rawhide treats, right? Uh, they, they gnawed on them all day. We called them chewies. So we would throw those chewy down and the golden retriever would lay down and they would grab the chewy with their paw like this and they would tilt their head to the side and they would haga, right? They would just chew on this thing slowly and as soon as you pulled out one of those chewies, excited groans of delight came out of these animals, right? So there they would be just laying on the floor ingesting these things. They were hagawing it. That is to hagaw. The other day I was with a friend, it turns out uh, he makes some of the best carne asada in all the cosmos. Just perfectly marinated, perfectly grilled, and just, just right. But it didn't eat it. I got it. It was so, it was so good. I was a little bit verbal with it, trying to extract all like the otherworldly flavors. And it's like, oh, this is so good. It was a little embarrassing. It's kind of like, you've seen What About Bob? An old movie, What About Bob? Bill Murray is eating with Richard Dreyfuss and his family. And Bill Murray is just like, oh, this is so good. Mm, like it just gets really awkward. 
that's a little bit of what I was like. See, to meditate is a dog with a bone kind of reading. And that's how we need to read the scriptures, a dog with a bone kind of reading. That's what we're called to. We see it here in Psalm 1. We see it in Proverbs 1 and 2. We see it in Joshua 1, 8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouths, but you shall meditate on it day and night. By the way, when these verses say day and night, it doesn't just mean a morning devotion and an evening devotion. It's a poetic uh, figure of speech called a merism, which means all the time. All the time it should be in your head, in your heart, on your lips. And it's fascinating. Whenever there's a big seam in the different books throughout the entirety of Scripture, whenever a new seam of books starts, so to speak, uh, it always talks about the Word of God and delighting in the Word of God. A key theme that we need to understand and get into us, delighting in the Word of God. So think of biblical meditation like eating. And when you eat that carne asada, well, first you have to go to the efforts of getting it. Somehow it's on your plate. And then you put it in your mouth. And then you chew it. And then you swallow it. And then your digestive system churns it. You assimilate it and and it becomes metabolized in your body. And it changes you. It physiologically changes you from the inside out. It energizes you. It enables you to live and to move and to be and to work and, and to play and to laugh with your friends. The Haggaiing is transformative, and so it is when you feast on Scripture. It rewires you, it transforms you from the inside out. This is the Hebrew understanding of meditation, in eating, a delighting in, an unhurried, effort-engaged, intensive and focused reading of God's Word. And it's unhurried. It's slow. It's repetitive. It's recursive. It repeats things over and over. It repeats things over and over. It repeats things over and over from different angles. It is not like the world that is aiming at technique and efficiency just to minimize interaction, just to move on to the next thing. It is not in a hurry. And this idea of always moving on to something new, getting something quick so you can get on to the next thing is a chronic disease of our day. It is a novelty addiction that keeps us from going into the deep depths. Now with that said, let's learn a little bit more about how this kind of literature functions so we can best read it and chew on it. So the the Hebrew scriptures don't always give up their their meaning on the surface. They require an, an opening of the mind, an unfurling of the heart. It's a kind of literature that does require effort, and it requires community. Reading them in community, it requires meditation and prayer and time and intentionality, and it requires a spirit showing us the truth of his word. And so the scriptures are meant to draw us in for active, relational reading. And this is important for us to hear because, again, we live in a world that wants to microwave seeds to create forests. And it doesn't work, and it never will. We live in a world that cultivates an unhealthy desire for a quick fix, the swiftest and most efficient way to level up and get to the next thing. It is a world with a microwave mentality. Hurry up, acquire, get the data, move on. Next. Speed is one of the cardinal virtues of the information age, but speed often leads to surface engagement, doesn't it? 
It leads to being stuck in the muddy shallow, skimming across the surface like a flat rock is skipped across a lake by a child. That's how we often navigate our days. Problem is, you don't microwave a seed to turn it into a towering oak. You can't microwave maturity. And in a like fashion, you can't hurry wisdom along. You don't rush being pregnant. The child within develops in an unhurried way over a specific time span. And patience is at odds with wisdom. Control and selfish consumption are at odds with wisdom. And like God gives growth to seed <clears throat> through the means of natural elements, soil, water, light, minerals, wisdom grows in the soul through the word he has graciously given us and planted in us his life-giving elemental word. And so metaphors matter. The Bible is not a hard drive or a network we simply download data from to get along in our days or to cope. It is a medium of personal relationship. The Bible is a medium of personal relationship. It is communion. It's not only for knowing something, it is for knowing someone because the Word of God is God's self-expression. It's not like we, you know, you're reading Moby Dick or, or, or Crime and Punishment. You are reading the Word of God with the Spirit of God present with you and there is communion between a creature and the Creator that is happening as you read the Word of God by the power of the Spirit. It's about relationship and communion. That said, you know, it's interesting. The Bible is, is one-third poetry. Do you know that? The Bible is one-third poetry. You count up all the genres and like portion it out. It's about one-third poetry. That's telling. Because poetry is not about efficiency. Poetry is about the slowing of time and the intensification of focus and bringing things into relationship. It is about the good work of removing the film of familiarity that the poet Coleridge once said, to remove the film of familiarity, to usher us into a new place where our emotions are engaged, and we are experiencing what the author was experiencing, and we are meeting there together. One third of the Bible's poetry. So this leads us to what the Bible is. It's really important that we as a church family are aligned on this, understand this together, and then can teach others the same glorious truth. So what is the Bible? Why is it different than other books? Why should we be feasting on it? Well, the Bible is the God-breathed, humanity-pinned, story-shaped library that leads to encountering Jesus. The Bible is the God-breathed, humanity-pinned, story-shaped library that leads to encountering Jesus. Jesus. So let's talk about this for a few moments. Let's do it through the scriptures. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. And here, Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Those are the scriptures. Those are the Hebrew scriptures. 
the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's telling us that the sacred writings of old, the Hebrew scriptures, are teaching us about salvation and how it comes through Jesus, that Jesus is the way, right? The Old Testament is about Jesus. It makes us wise for salvation. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is what he calls, and this is so great, Theonoustos. God breathed. Theo, God, noustos, like a pneumatic pump, uh, like air, wind. Scripture is God breathed. God worked through human agency to inspire so the, the scriptures would be written. It is the word of God written through human agency. Matthew, I don't have this verse for you up here, but Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is refuting the errors of the Pharisees. And, and he says this, and he says, uh, he quotes Psalm 110. He says, it was written by King David by the Spirit of God. It was written by King David by the Spirit of God. So is it written by God or is it written by man? Yes, it's written by both. The Spirit moved through David as a fully conscious agent. David wrote by the power of the Spirit. Peter affirms this in 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Um, he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, pheromenoi, by the Holy Spirit. This can be seen as a metaphor of like a boat on the, on the water and the wind pushing the sails and the Spirit moving that boat. So there is, there is an instrumentality, there's agency that the Lord is, is using. It's this awesome combination of divine and human. The scriptures are divine and human. They are the word of God. So God breathed, but they're also humanity pinned right? Um, God moves through authors, particular people in particular times and particular places. So you have different temperaments, like Mark, totally different than Isaiah. Mark is like action-oriented. He's like a movie. Come on, let's go. Let's move through this. And Isaiah is this, this high prose-style literature, right? There's a richness and depth that must be taken into account when we open the scriptures. Now, it's also a story-shaped library, it's a story-shaped library. The word Bible comes from uh, the Greek word biblia, which means books. There's an S on the end. It means books. So the Bible is the book of books. It is a library, 66 books to be exact. And when you look at the genre of those books, about 43% is narrative, storytelling. 33% is, is poetry. And 24% is prose, discourse, dialogue, letter writing. It's all relational. And what this means for us, though, is that when we read it, we have to be conscious about what we are reading. We have to read it literarily. We need to take the genre into consideration, think it through, ponder. And, and as it goes for, for real estate, location, 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 for interpreting Scripture, it's context, context, context. Bible is true and true through its various genres. And consider this, 66 books 
written over the course of some 1,500 plus years by some 40 plus authors, 10 civilizations, three continents, three languages, one unified story of redemption, more harmonious with a deeper, congruent, coherent structure than the greatest literature that this world has ever put forward. And the deeper you go into it, the more finely tuned you see its coherence. It's incredible. It's glorious. There's an apology at the literary level of Scripture. Now, uh, there's this arc that runs through it. See, this isn't just a, a, a hodgepodge of principles and, and parables and disconnected stories. But there's an arc that runs through it. Genesis is full of seeds that, that will germinate, and that will bloom, will blossom, and bear fruit in all of the other books of the Bible. And the words that Jesus says, they don't just pop out of thin air. They grow out of the rich soil, the, the earthiness of Israel's history. Themes and patterns all woven together into a cohesive whole. Have you ever seen this image? Maybe some of you have seen this image. Do you know what this image is? This is an infographic. Yes, it's an infographic of, of all the intertextuality, of all the cross-references in Scripture. In other words, this is an infographic of the hyperlinks. So see that G over to the left? That's a Genesis. Over to the right, that's Revelation. All those lines at the bottom, those white ones, those are chapters in the books of the Bible, and all the colorful arcs are interconnections, interplay, showing the tight weave of Scripture. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. It's beautiful. This chart has over 63,000 cross-references, hyperlinks. And this is of a, a conservative estimate. Some scholars say it's more like 340,000 of those. It's a story. The brain literally thinks in story-shaped synapses, beginning, middle, and end. An arc of electricity moving through the body is in the story shape. We are neurally wired to place things into narrative, which is why you can hear sometimes me talk for a long time, but you only remember a tiny little story a couple months later. Because the brain attaches to those stories. Stories are meaningful. They're full of meaning, meaningful narratives. As humans, we speak in stories. We learn by stories. They give shape to our world. It's why we see somebody on Monday and we say, how was the week? And they go, oh, you wouldn't believe it. Went on a road trip. And, and the, the, we had a, a blowout. The tire was, was gone. And then that just created this whole event. Of, like, we tell stories. We can't help but to tell stories. And the Bible is a cohesive, unified narrative. Every book put in place to contribute to the big story of the drama of redemption. Now, I, I do want to say this. On this note, I want to address a question that came up um, from last week's sermon. So in this series, what we're saying is the way of following Jesus, the way of apprenticeship, is, is the way of becoming truly human, becoming more and more like Jesus. And the question came up, wait, why human? Why human? Isn't my humanness my problem? Don't I need to be more like Jesus and get rid of the human stuff in me and be something else? It's a, it's a really important question. But this is where we need to take the whole counsel of God's word into consideration. Because here's what happens. Sometimes our anthropology, our understanding of human nature, mistakenly starts in Genesis 3 when the garden grew dark. Here's the problem about getting our anthropology just from Genesis 3 and on. Where does the Bible start? Chapter 
chapter 1. And from chapter 1 to chapter 2, there is a good God who is gardening a good world, and he creates these human beings. And he says they are tov meoth, very good. They are very good, and they are made in his image. And so when we see how the story works together, we see that we don't need to escape from humanity. We need our humanity redeemed and restored so that we can be what God has intended us to be in his brilliant design. And then think of this. Jesus was still and was and still is truly human and truly God. When, when the Son of God took on human flesh, he showed the great honor and gift that humanity is. We need to get our anthropology from the whole big meaningful story of Scripture. So yes, we are sinful, radically broken, and in need of salvation. Yes, true fact. But humanity is a gift from God, and it is intended to reflect God. So God the Son took on our humanity to redeem our humanity for the glory of God and the good of all creation. And by the way, when Jesus went up and was ascended, he didn't leave his humanity behind. Because right now, a human being with scars in his flesh is sitting on the throne of the cosmos, ruling and reigning, fully human and fully God. So we need to get our anthropology from all of Scripture. Now, what is meant, uh, what, what is that big meaningful story that the scripture points towards? Well, it's redemption and it all leads us to Jesus. It all leads us to Jesus. All the prophecies all along pointed to him. All the scripture aches forward and leans towards him. He is the substance to which all the shadows pointed. I want to read a few verses by Jesus here. Uh, I find them very, very important for this topic. So John chapter 5. Verse 39 through 40 and 46 through 47. Jesus says these staggering words to the religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus saying Moses in the writings, the Old Testament, point to him. One more for good measure. Uh, Luke chapter 24. This is um, verse 25 through 27. This happens on Easter evening. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is walking with some apprentices of his. They don't recognize him. And he says, Oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It all points to him. The Bible is the God-breathed, humanity-pinned, story-shaped library that leads to encountering Jesus. And this is why, as his apprentices, we are to feast on his word, to Haggah. It, to meditate on it because his word is the living word of God that leads to encountering Jesus, to sitting at his feet, to abiding with him, and learning how to live like him. Now this is where in the first service I had to reorganize everything and chop out a page of my notes and move forward. Um, so now I think I know where I'm going around to here. Uh, look, we are in a war of, of words in this world. We are in a war of 
of stories, of conflicting narratives. And I know that sounds dramatic, but I, I think it's actually, uh, my words are too thin and they're not strong enough in stating this truth. Because every day when you wake up, you are confronted with the choice of what voice to listen to. Will you listen to the word of God, what it says is real? What the word says is good and beautiful and true? Or will you listen to some alternative voice that's telling you the story about reality, that's telling you what success is, that's telling you what what image you should be bearing, that's telling you what marriage is like, or it's telling you what gender is like, or it's telling you what's okay or what's not okay with your body. And are you pulling these things just primarily from a Netflix queue? Like, what story are we listening to? Is it the story that the self is sovereign, that no one should hold us accountable? Is it the story that any form of authority is just a power play so you can't trust any authority, including the scriptures? Is it saying that all bids for equality are equally good and true, so do what you want? See, the stories we meditate on are powerfully at work in shaping our imaginations and shaping the contours of our lived lives. And this war of narratives, by the way, this war of words, well, this is what happened in the beginning, right? What, is, what does Satan say to Eve? Did God really say? In other words, Satan is putting forward a counter story, a counter narrative saying, this is really how it is. Don't listen to, to his story. That's not the good story. This is the good story. It's an alternative narrative to God's voice. It's an attack on and the twisting of God's word. It's a rival narrative that is at the root of all ruin in creation. We have so often meditated on the wrong story and listened to some other voice other than God's. Now, um, I want to quote uh, Ivan Ilyich here. He's an Austrian philosopher and priest. Just beautiful words that I think will help sum this up. Here's what Ilyich once said when talked about societal change. He said, Neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a powerful new tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and it becomes the preferred story. One so inclusive that it gathers all of the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole. One that even shines some light into the future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change society, then you have to tell an alternate story. See, what we meditate on is a matter of life and death. So friends, eat this book. Be a tree. Train in godliness. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Abide with him. Listen to his voice. Meditate on scripture more than you eat physical food. For as Jesus says in Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And no doubt, we will keep reaching for light switches that aren't there because of long ingrained muscle memories of broken narratives that live within our body. But as we practice scripture meditation, as we listen to the word of God above all other voices, the spirit of God will shape us into the image of Jesus. He will faithfully reform us from one degree of glory to another so that we 
might live in the light of his love. Let's pray. Father, you're good and you are gracious and you are kind. And Lord Jesus, thank you. You are the word of God that reveals the Father's great love for us, that shows us how to live wisely in this world, and you empower us with your spirit. So thank you. We now come to this time of this table of grace and confession um, with gratitude in our hearts. Lord, minister to us. Unveil our eyes. Amen.